Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the Film Alchemist Podcast, the show where we look at movies we love, break them apart to find out what gives them their magic. Very few movies we've watched have ever been as magical as the one we're about to dive into. I am your host, Josh Griffey, joined as always by my S&M four-wheeling co-host of hell. Mandy. I mean, Alex Dandino. <laughs> Uh, yeah, guys, this is a special now playing, uh, movie that happens to go inside with our Nicolas Cage month. Lucky us. Now this movie came out last week. If you're hearing this, uh, as of today, uh, Nicolas Cage's new movie, Mandy. Um, I don't know that there's an elevator pitch for this movie that I can, that I am smart enough to work up except for heavy metal madness. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's really simple. It's like, did you ever watch Heavy Metal when you were a kid? Did you wish you could do that? This is that movie. <laughs> that's 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 the elevator it's, pitch. It this movie to me, and I know we're early on, and I've told you, I we talked about this when we watched The Lure, right? There are some movies that are just more perfectly designed for Josh Griffey than others. Yeah. This is that movie for me. <laughs> yeah, this is that movie that combines all these elements that, A, I think you really loved about living in Los Angeles with all the things you <laughs> hated about living in Los Angeles and combining them into one sort of horrifying S&M revenge story, which is, again, not to say that this movie is not for just the masses. This movie should be absolutely devoured by people. I think this movie is – I thought the movie was amazing. There well, is the, the the times that you get a movie like this, right, with someone like Nicolas Cage that still is genre enough to make it fun. I mean, those movies just don't come along. And this is one of those movies I, I've been rewatching parts of it over and over and over again all week. Um, it's just one of those really fascinating movies. Not to say that all of it. Is this streamlined masterwork, you know, of narrative storytelling? No, but let's not kid to ourselves. Me, it just fucking sings, man. Like, like there, there is so much beauty, and this is the perfect movie for the film Alchemist, right? Because there are so many disparate parts, kind of constantly tugging and pulling you, yeah, um, to every corner of the screen. If but it all works, and it it what it does is these kind of disparate elements become cement shoes that drag you. At, all the way into the depths of this movie. <laughs> if you have seen this movie, like I, I want to say this, like if you, if, if you're listening to the show, having watched the movie, imagine going into a pitch meeting, pitching this entire movie, like pitching the concepts and all the things that go on in this movie. Imagine how bonkers it all sounds, and everyone's staring at you like you have lobsters crawling out of your ears, and then ending it with, "By the way, Nicolas Cage is attached." Like that. <laughs> That is like the greatest. That that really is truly the greatest pitch of all time. So like ending it with also Nicolas Cage is attached as the lead. Like that is the coolest part of this movie. Yeah, you want to end all your pitches that way. <laughs> yeah, right. Like you no, always want to be able to say that. I mean, it's it's just madness to me. This is the peak of kind of midnight cult cinema. It's it's new wave grindhouse. Yeah, this is that. This is the apex, I think. Like no one will ever be able to do what this movie does better with this whole nostalgia kick we're on. Like this movie isn't even nostalgic. Like that's the greatest thing is it harkens back to all these cool things you've seen and like like 
it, it easily could have been a movie you found like at the multiplex in like 1978, but it's now 2018 and you see this movie and there's all these elements that seem like they would be throwbacks, but it's so just, it's used in such a way that doesn't feel like, like stranger things is meant to be a throwback. This is right. so not like that at all. Well, Mandy doesn't spend a lot of time constantly being like, see, see, remember, remember right, this. Yeah, no, not at all. It doesn't do that. It just, you know, it's a matter of fact what, that what this, this movie, movie takes place in the early 80s. What this movie does is it says, see, see, remember that one movie from 1976 that played at the B movie uh, at the New Beverly off sunset? Like, it's a whole, like, if you haven't seen X, X kind of movie, you're kind of not going to understand. You're going to get thrown in the deep end. But that's okay because it's awesome. Yeah, it's I mean it would be hard to even find a comparative film with this one. No. Uh yeah, I mean it, it's part Hellraiser, it's part Alice in Wonderland. Uh say a, t- I mean, a touch of light, a touch of Suspiria lighting like Oh my god, the the music and lighting is very Suspiria. It's Yeah. All right, so to dive in, right? We start off with this title card that as the movie ends, I'm not sure I have any idea what the fuck it means. To the okay, I wrote the exact same thing. I was like, "What's okay. that quote at the opening?" Here it is: "When I die, bury me deep. Lay two speakers at my feet. <laughs> I can't even get through it. Wrap some headphones around my head and rock and roll me when I'm dead." Now the opening <laughs> song is a King Crimson song, so I was yeah. like, I don't know if this is some kind of lyric that I'm unaware of. Not only is it, um, a, not again, only is it King Crimson, they like specify opening song King Crimson. Literally nothing else besides crediting uh, Johan Johansson is done throughout this movie for the music. But they want everyone <laughs> to know we used a King Crimson song up front, so you guys know what movie you're in for. Yeah, you don't fuck with the Crimson. No, but this is <laughs> it's such. Because this is the thing. This does not get in the movie unless it has some kind of very hyper-specific meaning right? Uh, to this filmmaker. And by the end of the film, I have to say, I, at best, am befuddled. Because <laughs> I, like, I was like, I guess because this plays like, you know, heavy metal Lord of the Rings. But wow. I was like, other than that, I'm, I don't I'm know a bit, about that, man. I'm a bit confused. <laughs> As to the opening title card. So we dive into that and then we uh, we meet Lumberjack Nick Cage coming home from a long, long day's work, right? Yeah. He's a lumberjack and whatever gets on the plane. He's in his little uh, Jeep. He turns off the Ronald Reagan speech about morality. That kind of lets you know where we're going right away. Yeah. I was like, I, I was watching him like, man, Reagan really stifles the shit out of people. And then he turns around. I'm like, okay, good. We're not going to deal with any of that. But shit. this is. Yeah. So then after he turns off the Reagan, we get one of the first of many, you know, intro title cards. I love that motif, by the way. And this is uh, the Shadow Mountains, 1983, yeah. but it's fucking sparkly as hell. But 1983 AD. Oh, thank you for reminding me that it was after Christ's death. Thank you, I appreciate that. That's like one of my favorite little one of my favorite little things is that I'm like, that's a nice touch because it's absolutely ridiculous, but it also wants to remind you, like, hey, this is not like because the trip you're about to go on is pretty fascinating. You need to remember that it's 1983. Like, that's a really important aspect of this movie. <laughs> because <laughs> the shocker of this film is just, that's the part you're like, whoa, where is this all happening? Well, it's just so strange, right? So we, we hit this woods and, and him and his, uh, his lady friend are living together. The and titular they Mandy. Set up, yeah, they, Mandy, yeah. 
they set up this Adam and Eve kind of existence, right? That when he leaves that world, he turns off the Reagan. They're very isolated, right? So they're sitting at home. They're enjoying each other's company. Um, There's a beautiful shot of them just on this idyllic lake. And they cut to, and this is one of my favorite. I mean, they do this a lot, right? So they, they cut to this burning flame. And we see that this is Nicolas Cage kind of smoking a little uh world weary right stoking the flames just beyond the flames we see mandy submerged only her nose and up staring back at him right like this kind of very ominous you know uh waterly visage that she's presenting and nicholas cage is kind of staring at her soaking the fire and they do this a lot with these insanely uncomfortable close-ups that they hold for long stretches of time so early on, you kind of get this, um, you know, Adam and Eve Eden vibe, but you get the feeling that Nicolas Cage is aware that this can't last for long. He yeah. even mentions to Mandy, maybe we should leave. But, you know, of course, she doesn't want to leave. It's very idyllic. Of course. I mean, that's like that's the hallmark of any great any great one of these kinds of movies. Like that's the hallmark, though, is the staying. That's always the thing. Like, I, I, yeah. how many times have you seen a horror movie and someone goes, no, nah, we'll just stay. It'll be fine. Like, no, get the fuck out of there. Something terrible is about to happen. But the weird thing to me is how Nicolas Cage seems to just, for no reason, assume something bad is going to come. It's just right. This- and it's it's kind of an interesting layer they built into his character is that he's so, I mean, to be that far removed from everything and still be like, we must run further. Right. That that lets you know a lot about him early on, right? For a very like, quiet, it's a very quiet like first thirty minutes for Nick yeah. Cage in this movie. I feel like that has a lot to do with, again, you like you see the little scar on Mandy's face and him yeah. in general. They're both very quiet, so clearly, and it's never spoken, but clearly both of them have been through some horrible shit in their life. Like the trauma that they've both incurred collectively, let alone separately, is probably a lot to bear. So I think maybe. That's what's great is just like, and this is the great greatness of like the directing, but also the acting is just from the very presence of their characters, you get the sense like these guys have been through some shit and it's definitely not over. Like you don't go into, out in right. the middle of the woods to hide because you're just like for the fuck of it. Like you go because you're escaping something. Yeah. You want to be separate from this world. Right. Um, they do a really cool job of bonding them through trauma. I think that's a cool way to say it. Um, I love the story about the baby starlings, right? Mm-hmm. Where, and this is something they do a lot in the movie too, which is they'll they'll have these kind of medium wide shots, yeah, and then they just slowly push in, and it's this unrelenting, never cutting monologuing, right? And if not monologuing, just fucking staring down the camera and making you feel the weight of these actors, right? But it's a cool story, right? This is kind of something that comes up as the theme of this movie is this things just wanting to be what they are and being crushed by the outside world and the forces. Yeah. And so Mandy's talking about her dad who just shows up with this bag, these birds that she loved and is like, here kids, I'm going to show you how to brain these things. Yeah. Oh my God. Hits hits one so hard. He buries it in the, the dirt as if it was a little grave. I think she says. Yeah. And she's like, when it was my turn, I just turned and fucking ran. And to me, that's where you got it right, right? That that's she's the little starling. She she turned and ran all the way out into these fucking deep dark woods. Right. Uh, it's just cool, man. It's it's cool acting, and they mix this with another effect they do a lot, which is the um they completely just bathe scenes in one color. 
Yeah. There's no kind of the lighting in itself is very fascinating and how they choose to a lot of times someone will be speaking and their face is completely shadowed, right? Well, they use, even in a natural setting, but then they flood it with these very bright insane colors. Yeah, they use different like they either they fill the frame or they actually deliberately like use a big like Leco stage light to like really highlight it. Like the one thing they do a lot is when um Mandy, when something supernatural is being handed to someone in the movie, there's that flashing green light. Like the that strobe happens. effect, yeah. <laughs> the green strobe, the red is obviously really, really important. Like the scene where the um, the scene where the cult actually happens upon Mandy, the frame is just painted red. Like there's no like light filters yeah. or anything. They literally just put it through the Avid and made the scene red, which I thought was really interesting because again, like red is like. In this movie, red is the significant color, but it also signifies, like, prepare yourself. Like, that's, I think, the thing that I love the most about this movie is color is the thing that really hearkens foreboding for us. Like, I really, really, really like that part. Like, that's the thing that I think is right. more, uh, I wouldn't say it's suspiria but I really think that that's what is the most, like, that's what makes things most surreal in this film is the use of lighting. Well, what it is is, yeah, it, it kind of creates this emotional psychedelic effect for us, the audience. Right. Um, as soon as they do, like some of the shots you're talking about, like they're, when they're laying in bed, it's so blue and cold. Mm -hmm. But it's it's blue to the point it almost distorts parts of the image. And the same with the reds and, you know, purple. Like every right. one of my notes, when I start, I, I make a big note of what color the scene is. Right. There's, um, and there's a ton. And it becomes very important. And there's a ton yeah. of camera effect, like in-camera effects in this movie that... Like, really kind of, like, like, there's a lot of, like, drifting and that kind of thing. Like, that happens a lot when people are really fucked up on LSD, which happens mm -hmm. in the movie quite often, in fact. Um, <laughs> but light, I think, really, really plays a big part in explaining what you don't want to have to explain with any sort of... Because there's almost no exposition in this movie, which is... Right. Well, it's it's the weird effect of... it. it is giving us it kind of this emotional overtone, but also completely pulling us out of the reality of the situation. Right. So the one you were talking about, I think is a great example where there's this bright red shot as we're introduced to the, the cult, right? The children of new dawn. Yeah. And they're in the van and they see Mandy walking and it's just fucking red. And, and to me, the red in this movie is obviously a, a color of passion, but what we learn is how we're often victimized by the passions of others. Right. Right. That having passion for someone else or someone else having passion for you becomes uh, a journey to darkness and aloneness. Right. This inevitability of loss and, and failure and danger pervades the entire film. Yeah. It's uh, it's really, it's really specific. Like there's, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of things in this movie that are done like oh by happenstance of yeah you know we just needed to film the scene like everything in this movie is so specific and it almost can be too much on occasion but most of the time it's strange like most of the things that seem like they're almost too much get punctuated by something really fundamental like I hate to be this blunt about it but like later on in that scene like like after the children of the new dawn kidnap Mandy, because that's really kind of what ends up happening. It's like Linus Roach who plays uh Jeremiah sand, the cult leader goes, Oh yeah, I need that woman. Like 
and also like totally degrades the hell out of the rest of the people who who keep who like keep his whole thing going like he's like discussing it with uh whoever his like second in command is and he literally looks at it and goes what about the porker like that that is i was like oh great we're gonna fat shame this poor guy just trying yeah to do no jared Jeremiah Sand has such a fucking awesome intro to the movie because essentially yeah. it's just him laying in the bed being such a little bitch. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm so sad. <laughs> but all he's doing is just nagging the fuck out of everyone in that Screaming at that one like, no, you are not. Like, that's like, yeah, I'm well, like, he, wow. But what you learn about Jeremiah right off the bat, and I actually said a fun subtitle for this movie would be how Jeremiah got his groove back. <laughs> but... <laughs> That's an old 90s movie for you kids out there. Wow. Uh, but yeah, so there, there is this, this thing we see with Jeremiah, which is, again, this gets back to the, the red, right? This, this passion. But Jeremiah cannot see these other people as humans. Right. And what we see with Jeremiah is such a fucking fascinating character. And I brought this up to you. Nicolas Cage talked about this in a GQ interview. He was originally approached in this movie by the director, uh, Panos, I believe his name is, mm-hmm. to do Jeremiah Sands. They wanted Nicolas Cage to be the crazy cult leader, which when you watch it, it's almost so on the nose Nicolas Cage character. Yeah. that It, it, it would have been hard for him to do it well. I don't know. Like the more I thought about it, especially once we once I got done with the movie, because I remember us talking about it in the middle of the day today. And the more I thought about it, and the more I watched it, I realized like. That is a yeah, a little on the nose for Nicolas Cage, but I also think like the range of that character is so small. Like that's the kind of thing you call in for Nicolas Cage to do with like just a cameo. Like the reason you want Nicolas Cage as Red rather than Jeremiah Sand is because the range of emotions required for that character are just especially after finish it now, I don't think you could have there's no other actor on the planet that could do what he does in this movie. I really don't think so. Not to that degree and not to the amount of intrigue I still would have watching the movie. Like there's a million and one actors who can go crazy and look weird and do kind of funky shit like he has to do in this movie, but no one can sell it like Nicolas Cage can. No, th- this is a a peak cage vehicle. Yeah. Um I don't know, man. I there's a part of me that wanted to see this movie where he did like the uh, Eddie Murphy and just was both characters. Right. <laughs> yeah. I there's a version of Jeremiah Sand played by Nicolas Cage that I just fucking adore. There are so many moments with Jeremiah Sand where he is fucking awesome in this movie. Yeah. Do you- I, I love his his moment where there's a great fucking scene. When they first introduced the cult, right? Yeah. When Mandy's been captured and given the wasp sting and all that weird shit, they're putting <sighs> yeah. like wow. things in her eye. She comes out and she's tripping balls, right? Everyone's tripping and there he is in his Ric Flair robe. Right. And then he's like, hey, what's up? I'm the guy at the party. Uh, let me play vinyl. Let me tell you about this. I was like, oh, my God. He's like the worst hipster cult leader of all yeah, time. He really like, is he's like that guy at the party. Oh, it, this band, aren't they great? It's my band. The song is about me, actually. Yeah, his hipness is so pervasive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But there's this this awesome moment they do, right, where Jeremiah gets right up on the camera. And this is another one of those unflinching camera moments. Yeah really close up on his face and he's giving this i was in the abyss right when when the world denied me what was rightfully mine as a rock star uh you know i went to the abyss and they said no you were right right you're not separate from the world and as the world is you and an extension of you 
it's all for you. It's your pleasure. It's your right to take what you. It's this fucking awesome yeah. cult leader speech. But they do the coolest fucking thing in this moment where they overlay Mandy's face directly on top of his. Mm-hmm. And as the speech is going, it subtly starts to shift and fade. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like that a more mutating version of that old Michael Jackson video <laughs> where their faces are just blending into one another. And you can tell because Mandy's scar. Yeah. And, and his theory is, is that, you know, she is an extension of him and he needs her for his passion, whatever. But what you learn about Jeremiah is that he is incapable of perceiving any other human being in this movie except for through the lens of how they affect him. Well, yeah, I mean, he's he's a perfect, selfish, creepy asshole guy. Like, that's his that's his character. And I mean, what's interesting, too, is when you really pay, when you're really looking at the movie the way it is, like it's kind of fascinating to me, like Mandy and Red want to be left alone. They go out into the woods. They don't bother anybody. To me, what's interesting is Jeremiah Sand and the whole idea of like a cult is almost like this metaphor for humanity in general. Like we want people to be involved in our lives. We want to involve people in our lives. Like that's what social media and all this stuff is. So we do so to the point where we indoct- we try to indoctrinate people. Like we give them the things that make them like us. And then we slowly sit there and just preach our doctrine down to them. And to the point where like I, th- there's people that I know that live in the middle of nowhere, but still are on Facebook. Like I have a couple of friends who just literally live almost entirely <laughs> off the grid and they totally are fucking on Facebook showing Guys, I'm living off the grid. I'm like, no, you are not. In fact, they just don't Facebook. want that in the wild moment where they're just in a van rotting for seven months. Right. These guys don't care about that, apparently. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I, but it's great. Right. But it, it, it adds this extra level of sinister, right? So beyond just the hipster folk rocker, Ric Flair robe douche, right? Right. Drug party douche. Uh, there is this level. And like you said, right, when he says sacrifice the porker, these people live and worship him. And right. it's it's not enough. He can't appreciate them. They they are just. I think he always says, um, "Silly pigs with no souls." Right. Yeah. And it's he actually this this character becomes this really terrifyingly interesting character for what seems like kind of a one note zany cult leader. Right. They get a lot of run and depth out of this performance. I think the thing I like. Well, here's another reason I think Nicolas Cage could not have been Jeremiah Sand is. Uh, Linus Roach unfurls his uh, robe and he's exposed naked and you see his wang and you're like well there's another reason that's that's exactly why Nicolas Cage can do Nicolas Cage is far too impressive the idea is that like <laughs> the idea is that you can't have a guy like to me like look Linus Roach has a fine looking penis I'm not saying he's not you know endowed of some kind <laughs> but I really think it's important that his penis isn't just like huge and like just amazing the idea is that it's like kind of unimpressive like just it's a normal penis and then when she starts cackling at him for being just such a total fucking hipster creep and he starts his man his his wang it's like a whole nother layer of humiliation like his humiliation is more just like wait i'll I'll let you listen to my song and i'm telling you my stories and now you're laughing at my dick like that's not cool like it's a whole nother awesome layer of like just stripping away the ego of Jeremiah's hand that makes it that much more visceral too. I think that's the thing I really liked about that scene. Well, it, it is this great unfurling, right? He he presents himself as this 2001 level monolith amongst right, the yeah. apes. 
and she just hears him out and then just laughs at like, what a fucking dipshit you right. are. Well, then she tells and, him, like, the Reaper's going to get you, and you're like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, right. Oh, my God, it's so good. But it gets to this scene, and this is one of my favorite moments in the movie. Like, this is like a Nicolas Cage 101 scene that Linus was playing, which is where the cult leader then goes to the mirror, tell me what to do, tell me what to do, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me what to do. Yeah. It is insanely unsettling, and it is acted to perfection, this, this fucking madness. Yeah. Of self and he he's asking for a higher power to help him right and then we realize he's his own higher power right i think that's yeah I it's mean, very dark and fucked up scene but these are the scenes i think it would have been fun to see nicholas cage do that sure but but I, I agree with you i think linus uh roach presents it in a way that is a little more bubbling beneath the surface rage sure right he's still trying to kind of be a cool rock star guy yeah whereas nicholas cage i think just goes so fucking like this is where you see nicholas cage in that bathroom scene after everything okay. goes on and you're like i'm so God. glad you brought this up this is <laughs> but we're, we're skipping a lot of good stuff though we are but okay so we skipped the entire kidnapping first off yeah those uh the biker gang from <laughs> pinhead's puzzle box that's like one of my favorite little visual motifs in this movie yeah they send the bald guy out in a van into the woods to play uh, the Ocarina of Time from Zelda. <laughs> and next thing you know, yeah, these like S&M four-wheeling demons show up as we're led to presume. They're for, they're for sure Cenobites from some some version of the puzzle box. Right? It's kind of, yeah, it's a little more uh, white trash monster energy version of Hellraiser. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess not monster energy, full full meth and LSD at this point. Yeah, no, they're, they're they just present them a, a hipster jar of blood. And the guys drink the blood and essentially like, more blood. You know, and then they they do the first things first, right? right? So they call in these demons to go and capture Mandy. Right. And this is, again, where we get the strobe lighting effect of the blue room and mm-hmm. them being captured. So there's this extra layer. There's a great shot, too, of Piggy uh, scratching the window as he's pulled away. Yeah. That was like classic horror movie shit, man. I loved that. I was really sad. I hope the kid from Bad Santa got more screen time. Than that. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I mean, but this is all like that's what I mean. It's just like all these extra nuggets, right? So now we're adding in uh, supernatural S and M bikers. Yeah. Then we go and we do the cult leader who's cracking up. He has both right, and then after he's embarrassed, he comes up with his plan. Right. Right. And he goes to Nicolas Cage, presents him another artifact, this dagger. Yeah. Stabs Nicolas Cage and is essentially like, I will show you love. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. I'll show you love, dude. This is another great Jeremiah Sand moment. Has his fucking follower play Russian roulette to prove her her love of him. Right. They do so many great little things that are just truly disturbing behavior. Right. To show you the depths at which there's, there's no... Nothing sacred in this movie, it feels like. No, nothing. You like, feel truly unsafe narratively all the time. There's absolutely no way. Like, the only thing you are sure of in this film is that Nicolas Cage, if he does not die or succumb to his wounds, will go after these guys. It's literally the only thing you're sure of the entire movie. Other than that, though, everything's up for grabs. Nothing is a certain, nothing is a sure deal in this flick. Yeah, it's 
Oh, it's so fucking heavy because this is the thing. So essentially our our act two break, the guy decides he will show them what's up. So they string Mandy up in a burlap sack from a tree. Right. In lighter on fire, the bald guy's over there in the corner. The bigger the whore, the brighter the flame. Yeah. And Nicolas Cage just fucking watches this in agony. Yeah. And it is some of the best Cage acting I've seen in forever. But they do this great moment where they actually pan around the circle and show you every cult member's reaction to this moment. And you you see, then we cut to Nicolas Cage in this, this unflinching close-up of just a man losing the only thing that mattered to him in this whole world. Yes. And it, it's fucking stellar. And again, this movie has so many fantastic elements. The way the music comes and goes, the music in this film is fucking outstanding to me. This oh, is one yeah. of my favorite film scores in ages. Yeah. Johan Johansson, rest in peace, fucking knocked it out of the park with his last Yeah, this film, was man. his last piece, dude. I mean, and fuck? it's incredible. It's like if... Like, the whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm like, God, dude, this is like if Mastodon got led into the studio and they're like, oh, God, do you guys know how to play classical instruments? No. Well, try it anyways. It's fine. Like, <laughs> and then they, like, threw a whole bunch of overdrive over all of the audio. And you're like, damn. Like, because it's, it's intense, man. Like, it's it really, really something. It really is. <clears throat> and what I love about the music, too, is it, it plays into this thing, right? So... Mandy on fire and Nicolas Cage sitting there watching her burn and then eventually fucking skitters out and holds her ashes, dude. It is a fucking gnarly end to the opening of this movie. Right. Which which led me to one of the more fascinating things is this movie is insanely slow paced and controlled <laughs> for the kind yeah. of movie it is obviously wanting to be. I noted that as well. It's a movie that has so many elements and there's so much shit going on at all times, but it is an incredibly controlled narrative. Like literally it does not move forward unless like you can see the guy in the background. You can see Panos in the background, like making his moves. That's like, that's real control, especially in a movie this nutty and this surreal, not having that level of control. This becomes like really hammy and schlocky very quickly. Right. But this movie is a fucking masterpiece of control for especially for someone who says i'm going to make a movie with crazy light cues and nicholas cage <laughs> like that's a fucking that's a fucking director right there man right and and what i like about and, and now the music is a key to this right yeah it's this slow thick fucking heavy gothic score that kind of holds it together as you're starting to drift at times um but what it what it fucking does is it forces us, the audience, to sit in stew in the consequences of these decisions. Yeah. Because this whole movie, to me, could have been a feature-length version of kind of the the family dinner from Texas Chainsaw, right? Yeah, Just throw sure. a bunch of fucking crazy images on the screen and let people start going nuts and just try to capture yeah. as much madness as you can. But it, it does. it's not like that at all. This is so... Focused and disciplined yeah. for what is easily one of the, the most fucking chaotic and fevered stories I've seen in a while. And I, and I think that helps set up this transition into the, the finale. Because yeah. I will say this, the, the ending of the movie loses me at a point where I was so ingrained and engrossed in this opening act, right? And 
these kind of characters slow tragedies in the cult leader that once it starts to devolve into your basic kind of slasher stuff. Yeah. I found myself pulling out a little bit, but then Nicolas Cage is so fucking captivating. Yeah, he would see, drag me in. I think that's so this the is thing, where man. we were talking about that bathroom scene alone. Like I would just watch Nicolas Cage do that in any movie. Yeah. I, I wrote down this. Is, this is uh, the thing I wrote down in my notes was Nicolas Cage takes Ben Sanderson, Castor Troy, Benjamin Franklin Gates, Ronnie Camerari, Cameron Poe, Charlie and Donald Kaufman, and even a touch of that guy <laughs> in the family man. And he puts him into this one like, <laughs> unholy creation of a character it's like all the characters he has played through his career have literally led him to be mandy and they're all like jammed inside this character somewhere like it's fucking unreal and that that bathroom scene alone is just it's the it's the it's the holy grail of Nicolas cage doing Nicolas cage like that's that's well yeah you're, you're just watching this guy go through this fucking yeah and again, Nicolas Cage always said this, right? He's not a naturalistic actor. He He's more into the big kabuki theater kind of concepts. Right. This is peak Nicolas Cage version, right? This is just a man who's lost everything, who came home and saw the Cheddar Goblin commercial, which seemingly <laughs> just set him off. I mean, right away, right? So we get the Cheddar Goblin. Then Nicolas Cage runs into the bathroom. No pants on, by the way. Like The, the cult must have just taken his pants off for God knows Yeah, what. all tidy whities he runs into the bathroom, and I was like, oh, my God, he has bathroom booze. Like, this guy is a troubled, troubled man. <laughs> if you have bathroom booze, you're in big trouble. And just watching Nick Cage go from this, ah, he's going through this primal fucking Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde transformation. Yeah. And there are moments of weakness, right? He collapses on the toilet seat and cries a little, but then you see him re-solidify, and it's, it's just he takes you on such a fucking roller coaster in that one little, I mean, it feels like a three to five minute scene. I'm sure it's like a minute long, but it feels you're just sitting in there feeling the weight yeah. of this, these emotions with him. And it's, it's fucking crazy how, uh, how much the film constantly is just jamming pressure upon your head on the long box. We do shows about comic books. We think to find characters, we call them definitives. I would say that this scene is definitive Nicholas cage. I think I would chart it as my definitive Nicholas cage moment. Like I never thought I'd be able to say that about a movie from Nicholas cage, but this one might be the definitive. Like if I needed to show an alien, Hey, we hear there's this weird actor who does a lot of crazy shit. Like, Oh, <laughs> Nicholas Cage, give me a second. And I'd cue it up. That's what it would be. I'd be like, watch this scene. That's all you need to know about Nicholas Cage. Like, and then he'd be yeah. honored as a god, of course, and a hero amongst the alien people. But as nevertheless. He fucking should be, yeah. Exactly. No, but it's that's definitive Nicholas Cage, man. It's it's a really fun character. Yeah. Cause then this is the cool part too, right? So he wakes up again. He's re-solidified. He's re-transformed into this this other version of himself. He goes and finds his buddy's trailer. This is where he says, I need the Reaper back. And he gets this big fucking massive crossbow. crossbow. Yeah. The guy's made arrows for him. And he's kind of like, I didn't think you'd ever come for that again. This lets us know some shit has already gone down. Like there's a chance that Nicolas Cage has already had a straw dog scenario before. Right. <laughs> right. Maybe that's where Mandy got the scar. I can't remember it in the ending when we see their kind of 
very oh, unmeet cute if I, she's scarred up or not. I mean that uh, she's definitely scarred up. She's scarred up beforehand. I think that end that ending is like that meet cute is so bizarre because you're like, wait, I think this should have been at the beginning. Did they accidentally leave we, this on the end of the movie? We're gonna have to do a lot with the end, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. But, so what we learn is that yeah, Nicolas Cage is obviously some guy who's kind of been through this before. Yeah. Um, and what we learn now is we learn of the Black Skulls, right? These are the biker guys. There's a weird kind of through line in this movie that you can never tell if these bikers are supernatural or not. I think the through line, this is the through line in this movie more than anything is don't do bath salts. Like, honestly, like that's like, <laughs> that's the lesson I gleaned from this movie because to me, because when Carruthers, um, <laughs> when Carruthers explains how, the or no sorry what's well, not Carruthers it's fucking uh, Bubba uh, Gump it's yeah it's uh, no it's not Bubba Gump is it not Bubba Gump I thought Jeremiah Sand explained what happened someone in any case somebody explains how the bikers from P- uh, Pinhead's Puzzle Box became the bikers from Pinhead's Puzzle Box and basically they no that's Bubba Gump when he gets the Reaper okay so it is Carruthers okay cool so Carruthers explains like oh they got this like really terrible ba- batch of LSD. And it totally fucked them up, and now, like, they have to drink, like, LSD-laced human blood. You're like, okay, great. So, literally, this is just, like, flesh of the... F- this is, you know, you know, feast of the flesh. These guys are going to come in. Like, they are from Pinhead's Puzzle Box, <laughs> and they're just... They're, like, fucking, you know, hyped, hopped-up Floridians on bath salts. That's really what this is. Like, yeah, right? It's... It's like the gathering ended and they chugged their Fago and then things just went down. Yeah, they chugged their Fago this- laced with like, yeah, laced with LSD and bath salts. And like, cool, I guess we're fucking crazy now. But that's what I, I mean, this is the cool part is he has that great line too, where he's like, when I saw him, they were all in a lot of pain. Yeah. And you want to know the scary thing? They liked they it. liked it. And, uh, but like at one point, Nicolas Cage shoots a guy with the crossbow, hits him with this car and the car flips. Yeah. The guy lives, right? There's a lot of these kind of... He shoots another guy in the neck, and the guy just pulls it out, and they continue to tussle. Yeah. So I think the... The Skeletal Warriors kind of play along this same thing as Jeremiah Sanda. People creating these mythologies for themselves to present is so much more than they really are. Right. Well, right. And I mean, that's a lot of, a lot of movies that kind of tackle religious concepts. That's, that's one of the things right. that they do. Well, it happens. But to me, this plays like that trashy fantasy novel she's reading. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, it happens in like red gets caught and then, Oh God, he delivers my favorite line in the entire movie because one of the weird little, one of the weird little guys, like they nail him to the floor and then uh, like, dude, the bikers are kick-ass. Yeah. Like, they really are. He goes after these guys like he it's almost I feel like it's almost intentional for him to get caught because he wants to take these guys out. So he like he gets nailed to the floor and the weird one of the weird like the skinny little biker guy walks up to him and he gives him that line like you are a vicious snowflake and fucking just like (laughs) beams him with the with the um, lead pipe. And I'm like, all right, we're doing this like this is this flick, man, like. Then the next thing you see is that one guy watching porn on the TV with a giant, di- giant bladed dildo. Like, it's like straight out of seven. While doing a lot of cocaine. Okay, I don't think that was cocaine, by the way. I think that was LSD and bath salts. I really do. <laughs> because Red, then Red, like, takes an entire pile of it, like, scoops it up with a piece of glass and just 
huffs it. I'm like, yeah, well, I love it because he's already covered in the blood makeup. So the the coke just smears in with the blood. Yeah. And I'm like, this is just like classic Nicolas Cage imagery right here. Oh, no. The classic was this, is like directly before when he stabs that guy in the throat with the box cutter and just starts grinning like an idiot as blood is spilling into his mouth. I'm like, right. We're really going for this. Like, this is full. Yeah, because he gets the blood on his face. Then he does the coke. He has to go take out the other guy. Yeah. And then that's not enough, right? So he reaches up and grabs his super awesome fantasy battle axe. Yes. Which he forged himself like a true fucking badass. Oh, my God. That was the best. That's what I mean. This movie plays very much on the the fantasy the fantasy trip. I was right? watching him forge the battle axe. I'm like, did someone just like watch this? Did someone Was someone writing this script and going, I wonder what Griffey would like to see in a movie. Nicholas Cage forged <laughs> exactly. the battle axe. Griffey yeah. almost bought that prop in a mall five years ago. <laughs> I know, you right? write this in. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's just, it's everything I love in movies. Like, you could not find anything else I loved more <laughs> to put in this movies except for Triton if he made a cameo. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's so fucking funny. But then on top of just all the coke and blood, right, they decide to take it up a notch where he finds this this ball jar full of something. Right. We don't quite know what it is. Dips his finger in. <laughs> Takes a fucking hit, and then all of a sudden we cut to like the Peter Gabriel sledgehammer video, <laughs> where it's like okay. Nicholas like, Nicholas Cage's face, and it's like it's like melting like Lost Ark, and then he comes back, and there's this like rage face where Nicholas Cage is like, oh now it's on. Yeah. All the other shit before was child's play, as I'm slicing throat and evading razor dicks. <laughs> that was baby play. Now it's on. I was yeah, I was like, wow, we're really stepping into Raiders territory, like old school, like. <laughs> Old school face melting effects, like we're just going for it here. This movie has absolutely no qualms for just like I mean, just whipping out its gigantic dong and balls and just putting it on the table for everyone to watch. Yeah, this movie is big dick energy personified. Yeah, for sure. Someone <laughs> literally made a movie. This movie's original title is actually Big Dick Energy, but then that happened. They're like, you know, we can't do this anymore. Like that there's no way that's not true. Well, yeah, when it was more of a pure fantasy narrative, that's what it was. <laughs> the Big Dick Energy, a fantasy tale with Nicolas Cage. No, uh, it's just fucking madness, right? It's just madness on top of madness. Right after this, Nicolas Cage goes out, and there's, like, another henchman he has to fight. Defeats him and then lights his cigarette off the guy's corpse. Yes. I was like, corpse lighter. This is amazing. Yeah. It's such good Cage, right? And then we see this... this Descent into pure carnage, right? And I, I was listening to that interview he did again. And he talks about how Panos was like, once he has that skull juice, he becomes a Jason Voorhees. And Nicolas Cage is like, well, I don't watch slashers or whatever. But like to me, it's the golem, right? It's yeah. the old Jewish golem monster. For sure, yeah. Through all of this uh, you know, pain and suffering, he was formed. And now he's kind of this just soulless killing machine. Which, obviously, he was somewhat a killing machine before. Yeah. So he gets on his four-wheeler, and he he ventures off, right? This is where we get another of the heavy metal animations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, this of was, Mandy was this, Is this the last the, one? Yeah, she's pulling the serpent's eye from the beast. Right, right. Right, just as when she was reading that, that page from the fantasy novel about the sorcerer finds the green eye and this and that, she became that for the cult leader. Yeah. You know, now the cult leader is that for Nicolas Cage. There's this... And again, this gets back to it's another fantasy trope that I like that this movie uses a lot, but they make it the stakes a little higher by instead of, you know, finding the glaive and Kroll, 
um, some guy just finds someone he wants to have sex with, with or without their permission. <laughs> right. So there, there is this constant kind of fantastical pursuit of artifacts and, you know, these heroic totems um, just done in a very perverse and, and disturbing way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, getting down to kind of the end, because we are like at that point, we're in the 20 minute mark, like towards the end of this. movie. Oh, my God. Wait a sec. Before he finds the church. Yeah, no, no. We have to talk. Secondary, secondary Pete Cage scene. We have with the to, drug dealer. We have to talk about the drug dealer. We have to. <laughs> First off, I love that fucking actor. Like, I love him. Not only that, but the fact that he just has a tiger. What I love about this scene is Nicolas Cage walks in looking like absolute most insane version of Nicolas Cage, yeah. right? He never flinches or speaks. No. And the other man, the drug dealer, just has a conversation with him and does his own. He responds to things that Nicolas Cage is not even saying. Yeah. Like this. While is, he just lets the tiger out. He lets his tiger out. And then we get this amazing image of the tiger growling underneath the yeah. moon. <laughs> I mean, like this movie uh, is insane. The things every, that happen every in this frame movie of this crazy. movie shit. Yes, every frame of this movie should be painted on the side of a windowless van. Oh, no, for sure. This is like... Stellar. It, there's at least four, like, tableaus in this movie that should and will be painted on the side of, like, some fantasy prog rock nerd's van. Like, for sure. Like, it would be running down... It would be driving down the road, rocking King Crimson, and someone would be like, well, that's weird. Is that a fucking tiger howling under a moon? Yeah, it totally is. That's from the movie Mandy. It's, it's cool now. Don't worry about it. Like... <laughs> this movie's making that shit awesome all of a sudden. Like, that's what's great about this movie. What do you make of the fact that Nicolas Cage never responds to the drug dealer? Who do you think the drug... Like, why does he go to the drug dealer there? What does the drug dealer represent to you? Oh, I think the drug dealer represents sort of the last stop. Like, that's like... In the hero's journey, so to speak, there's always that last... It's the last chance to turn around. Like, there's a time where... It's the last chance to turn around, and then the chemist says, like, oh, they did you wrong. Like, that's where you're like, okay, like, this is going to happen, too. Like, because you know what's going to happen is he's going to tell him exactly where uh, the children of the New Dawn crash, and that's going to be what goes down. Like, I think that, to me, him confronting – it's strange. It's him confronting the last vestige of the real world because – also, the chemist is in this. It's the only room. It's the only thing really in the movie that's lit in what you would consider like normal natural lighting. Like, right. It's under very right. specific like uh, fluorescent lamps. And you're, you know, you're sitting there in like basically a clean room. So I think it's honestly to me, it's Red's like it's his kiss goodbye. Like he's like, I'm going off the deep end and this is how I'm going to do it. It's his last step before he has to. It's his last step before he gets to the. The, like the boss level. For me, I wondered if the chemist even existed. It was kind of a moment I had where hmm. a lot of this movie, I think that's kind of a silly way to look at it is like, is it real or is it not? The yeah. whole thing is kind of this. I feel like that's again. A I, I think it's a very wonderland kind of thing, right? It's to me, this, this is a fantasy movie first, right? Cause a lot of people would say, you know, it's thriller action horror. you know, it has a lot of genre elements from it. But to me, it plays like an absolute fantasy, right? This is a going to save the princess, but we know the princess is already gone kind of movie. I'd say looking at it from the aspect that it might be a fantasy is a dubious proposition at best. Because really, 
I think you're right. Everything could get chalked up to that at this point. Like, this movie could right. end with fucking, you know, Nicolas Cage waking up and going into the Wicker Man. Like, that's, it could just be a big fucking right. fever dream. Like, that's like... But this is the crazy thing, though, right? This is what kind of <laughs> gave me that first impression is... So we went from... All, like you said, everything is so insane to... You know, again, I hate to say a more normal setting because it clearly isn't. But that no, giant empty room with a tiger who's then unleashed, right? A tiger like Nicolas Cage's shirt when he crawled from that. Right. Uh, the binding and this and that. And having the conversation with himself and Nicolas Cage presents as this uh, almost Frankenstein monster, right. right? As another character. Oh, they did you wrong. Why do they always have to be like this? It's almost this indictment on all the humans he's been running from forever. Yeah. I mean, and so there there was a moment there where I was like, is this actually like the drug dealer who gave the Black Skulls the bikes? Or is this just a moment where we see Nicholas? Because this is the other thing, too. When he's killing the bikers, that is very different than when he's going to have to kill these cult members. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, those look in are kind of real people, even though they're so broken and far gone. I mean, the bikers are the bikers are f for survival. Like that's why they're faceless. They have no point. Like they're 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 muscle. So they are. That's that's red escaping for survival. When he's going after Children of the New Dawn, that's revenge. And I think that's sort of like that's right. why that's why I do think the chemist is real. Like I don't think the chemist is a figment of his imagination. I think. Yeah, I mean that's such a that's such a fucking childish way of describing it. It's not just because, but it's my, not. My like, brain is my brain is too small to understand all of this movie. Like, but there, there was this weird, I don't understand the decision to not have Nicolas Cage speak. And that's why I was like, there, there has to be something underlying that decision that I didn't quite grasp. I think the idea, and again, this is, it's Pete Cage. The idea is that you see Nicolas Cage, the look on his face the entire time. He never, you're right, he never flinches. He never changes that look on his face. And he's covered in blood. He's caked in it. And the chemist looks at him and knows exactly what's going on. He didn't have to even ask. Like, that's the important thing that I think is that's what I think is most important because the chemist could just as easily have told him to go somewhere else or said, I'm not giving up. You know, they're my best customers. I'm not giving up my answers like that kind of thing. The chemist knows. So, like, I feel like maybe the chemist is almost it's almost this sort of spiritual slash metaphysical representation of like it's like you be, it's you talking to yourself. It's the last step. Right. That's kind of what I saw, too, because, again, it was like, why let the tiger out? We don't see the kill. Right. And this is not a movie that just skips kills. No. You know? Like, they go for the carnage. So I was like, maybe the fact that he didn't kill that guy and he just let the tiger go. I think the tiger. There, there was something. And, again, obviously everything in this movie is working on a, you know. <laughs> yes. It has its, obviously, it's kind of two-dimensional. There like are the several levels. Flick. But there's a lot of levels. So that, yeah, the way I phrase it is not exactly correct. But I but think I think the chemist... It's a really fascinating choice to take the words out of Nicolas Cage's mouth. Right. Because right, right down the narrative line, when he confronts uh, Jeremiah San, it's almost the exact same setup, mm -hmm. just with strobe lights, and now Nicolas Cage is getting all of his verbiage in. Right. So I thought it was an interesting, cool... I mean, in a movie loaded with interesting 
directorial and acting decisions. This one really jumped out at me. Well, I don't think you're wrong, though. Like, I don't think the scene with the chemist is necessarily... I think the chemist is real, but I also think that the chemist is literally Nicolas Cage's character talking to himself. Like, that tiger is clearly Nicolas Cage letting the chain off. It's the last chance he has to say, am I going to just let this go and move on with my life? But no, he's not. And that's when the tiger walks out, and that's when you get that ridiculous you know it's when you get that airbrush look <laughs> like that's him right because the next but thing is, the, is him okay, driving cause yeah but that's what i mean the next thing that we really see right is he he wakes up and he finds the van right and again this is a very natural l- lighting look for a movie that doesn't do that often right so when you see this you know there's some kind of import to that decision right he, t- he puts the guy up against the tree, and as the guy's essentially just taking his last chance to be like, yeah, your Mandy was a whore. Uh, his fantasy battle axe, which also happens to have a gnarly spike at the end, just jams it into his fucking mouth, and it's this very kind of subdued, even though like the visceral impact of that violence is enormous. Right. It's much more subdued than like a chainsaw sword duel. Oh. And the lighting is very normal, and we see this girl who was... Kind of on the cusp of everything, right? Mm-hmm. Not all the way bad. There, there. That's another interesting character in the movie. But anyway, this moment, though, right? That very kind of somber, very real and simple moment right. of killing that guy. To me, symbolized this was almost this kind of fulcrum between the two bits of ultra violence we've just watched. Interesting. I'm not sure. If, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I read. I'm that. not sure how I would make it. I'm not sure if that's just something that it struck me like, oh, this just feels and looks different for this like five minute stretch of the movie. Well, I feel like but it's... to me to to pull the lights back and just let it be more of a normal killing. Right. That that felt like something more important to me. All right. I can see what you're saying. Like, I would actually say that the combination of lights and weapons is what expedites. So like there's what expedites it towards the end. Like if I'm looking at it this way. So you have naturalistic lighting and you have, cause it's not fully natural by the way. It's more just like morning yellow, sure. morning glow. Sure. Yeah. But you have them jam. But for this movie, it looks as close to the <laughs> right. real world as we're, we ever we're get. As close, <laughs> we're as close to normal as we're going to get in this movie. Right. <laughs> like, so you have him spike this guy in the face slowly too. Like that's, oh, that's the, God. that's the brutality Gnarly. of it. Then you amp it up with that same typical beautiful red light that's bathing them, and they have this awesome chainsaw sword duel. And then the last well, thing. Well, right, because the next thing we see is the little like pyramid, the like crucifix mm-hmm. temple, right? He goes downstairs. And he fucking decapitates This, is, this is essentially Cage venturing into hell. Yeah. No, he actually goes through the like red trap door, and, and he's entered the depths of hell, right? right? To face his devils. I think the chainsaw even happens a little before that moment, though. Oh, yeah, much much before. No, it's how he By gets the way, in. absolute sucker move to drop your awesome, dope fantasy battle axe for a chainsaw. Yeah. You don't even know if it'll start. Suck a move, Nick. You should have got got. But that's like, but but that's what it is. <laughs> but like, that was a fucking amazing kill when he wraps him with the chainsaw. Oh, and God. And he just, like, sits on top of it. Fuck, dude, that was so great. I love that overhead shot of just the blood spraying. <laughs> It reminded me a little bit. One of my favorite kills in any movie. We'll have to dig this up someday for the show. There's this movie called The Greenskeeper. Yeah. And Atlanta Braves racist pitcher John Rocker actually played the murderous Greenskeeper. 
God bless that man. And there is this moment where he stabs a guy through the heart with a sprinkler from his greenskeeper shed. <laughs> and the sprinkler goes and like waters the green with this guy's blood. <laughs> but I don't know why. All I could think about was that greenskeeper. <laughs> but I mean, like, it's a really it's fascinating, like for being a movie that's based in some version of reality. There is a lot of fantasy element to it. And the further you get into the further you get to the children of the new dawns, like castle, so to speak, we're in hardcore fantasy land. Like really, I mean, outside that scene with the chainsaw sword duel, like it reminds me of like Prince Philip battling a dragon outside the castle in sleeping beauty. Like it's that kind of shit. Like that's exactly, oh, yeah. that's exactly what that's supposed to evoke. And then you go down into the dungeon, you go deep and you go into hell and you fucking have to deal with, it's not just, brutality you got to deal with the fucking you got to deal with you know psychological torture and psychological okay horror. so let's kind of go through this beat by beat I'm, I'm taking some more this is actually i wrote maybe the most notes for this movie i've ever read okay so he's venturing down to hell right super good imagery the music's amazing right the first gatekeeper in hell is the old woman yeah who's essentially her strategy is to grab him and say i was the most sensual lover he's ever had. Right. I can anticipate my lover's every need. What do you make of that moment? Is this the woman just unburdening herself and trying to excuse what she did to Mandy? Or is this like one last moment of self-aggrandizing? I think it's... I, I want to say it's one or the other, but personally, I feel like it's... Because... Jeremiah Sand does something similar. She seems That's the like, most hurt and betrayed by the whole Mandy sure, situation. Absolutely. I think really kind of what it ends up being to me is this. It's hard to describe, but she ends up being she's not confessing like that's not at all what's going on. Right. Like and right. I, I really think what it is, is like in the stories, especially in the Bible or really in any kind of story with a demon or something like that demon's primary occupation is self-preservation so i think that's that that to me is what really struck a chord was she said all this stuff it had nothing to do with like how she felt if she felt betrayed by jeremiah or anything what it had to do with is take pity on me like don't you see what's really wrong and what really happened i was the one who was wrong it should have been me who was you know sacrificed in beauty like i should have been like this person like she wanted to be everlasting and i think the problem is is much like it goes with many sort of stories like this is the grass is always greener. And when you realize that death is knocking on your door, especially if you're someone who is a bringer of death, your self-preservation instincts are right through the roof. <laughs> yeah. It, it's kind of this moment of her trying to drape herself in this kind of mythical armor, right? The way the black skulls did the way Jeremiah does. Totally. She, she tries to create her own goddess persona. Right. Uh, what is great is that it obviously doesn't work, and Nick Cage throws her head at Jeremiah in the next shot. Which, by the way, when he looks in, I was like, "Is Jeremiah humping that wall?" Yeah, I thought so too. I was like, "Neither here nor there." But yeah, so this is when we get back into the strobe effect. He's either humping that uh, wall or just rocking it. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it could go either way with Jeremiah. Who knows? Uh, this is Cage showing down his demons. Yeah. This fucking sequence is awesome. Yeah. The strobe effect is so Jeremiah cool. stands his ground in front of the great Nicolas Cage and fucking delivers 
Yeah. An amazing cap to this performance. Like, yeah, Linus Roach, like, this is, I really hope, like, the only other thing I've seen Linus Roach in on a regular basis is fucking Law and Order. So seeing him do this is truly awesome. Like, oh, he great. delivers this fucking killer bad guy speech. Like, this awesome, like, I have fucking won. And Nicolas Cage comes in and just goes full Nicolas Cage. Like, I don't know really how to describe it, but like it's a combination of the filmmaking and then these two powerhouse performances in the same room. That strobe effect, once Nicolas Cage is grabbing, he's like, I'm your god now. Like this whole right. thing. It's so, it seemingly is Nicolas Cage defeating his worst instincts as an actor. <laughs> <laughs> like the personification of his worst movie characters. <laughs> it's Nicolas there, Cage there taking ghost. subtleness, right? Because, yeah, Jeremiah is doing this. Aha, uh-huh, you passed the test. Like, I'm here to be your savior. And then he's like, I'll suck your fucking dick, man. Like, be cool. I'll suck your dick. Yeah, this is Nick. He's just like, no, you kneel before Zod. This is Nicolas Cage <laughs> literally taking the, This is Nicolas Cage literally taking the head of Johnny Blaze and putting it down and crushing <laughs> and crushing that Ghost Rider skull with his bare hands. Why did I do Season of the Witch? <laughs> Smush. Sorcerer's uh, Apprentice. It's it's such a fucking awesome fun capper and Linus Roach just awesome fucking performance in yeah. this movie. That was such a fun way to end was to watch him because it's it's his moment again, right? Don't you ever doubt yourself, right? From yeah. the moment of you know suck my dick to just you kneel before Zah. Yeah, that He's was losing it. I'll suck it's your dick. So I will like that. I'm like wow. I think this is something really fascinating about this movie. Also, is like. The movie itself, visually, thematically, everything is so deep and dark and interesting and so well paced and everything. And the dialogue itself, other than a couple of these like soliloquies that these guys go on, is so like mundane and normal talk. Like Carruthers is a normal scene. The first time we actually hear Nicolas Cage speak, the first thing he says is, knock, knock. Who's there? Eric Estrada. Eric Estrada Hill. Oh, my God. Eric Estrada from Chips. Like, it's stuff like that. And Cringe. I'm like, I can't believe this is in this movie. It's amazing. You cannot have people waxing poetic. Like, Nicolas Cage's line down there is, the psychotic sinks where the mystic swims. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're sinking and I'm swimming. You're like, you just can't have people speaking like that for two hours. <laughs> yeah, like, they really, like, the script does a great job of showing you all this fucking insane shit. And then letting people talk just like completely normal. Like it's a normal day. Like, don't worry about it. We'll but get that's to that. why this is cool, right? While it is fantasy, it's this kind of religious horror film. It's definitely Grindhouse. It's a midnight cult classic of old throwback. Fuck, dude. Even the last but the it, last shot of the it movie still kind of plays like, I mean, there, there's very much some peck and paw in this. This oh, is a totally. little straw doggy. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this movie walks. Um, you know, between many worlds and does it really fucking well. And this is something we've kind of talked about with Nicolas Cage in general is the extents of madness and big fucking emotional performance that's always somehow rooted to a world that you believe this guy can exist in. Mm-hmm. This is a great example of what this movie as a whole does and he does really well in the movie. Uh, yeah, so the, the ending in general, right? We get the cleansing flame, right? Which was a nice throwback. From the cult leaders, you know, you can't escape the the righteous right. cleansing of the flame, right? So they all are burning, you know, burning fucking, you know, wooden church with the cross ab- ablaze. is really great imagery. Nicolas Cage gets in the car. Oh. 
and this is a weird okay so let's just walk through the basics and then we'll unpack it gets in the car we go back and see the not very cute meet cute right then we cut to the car of him seemingly driving her home from the bar the first time they met maybe that night right Mm -hmm. things are pretty cool Cut back to Nicolas Cage, fully fucking bloody, disgusting madman. Yeah. With this insane fucking smile. Cut back to Mandy, smile. Cut back to Nicolas Cage, sternly sitting, looking down at the steering wheel. You know, driving maybe slow. Camera pans back or cuts back, whatever. We're in a an unrecognizable actual hellscape. There's there's like there's the um, what the fuck happened there? <laughs> there's the there's like the stone cliffs from that one episode of Star Trek. There's three moons in the background. Like I don't know what's going on in that whole thing, but Nicolas Cage delivers this absolutely bizarre manic episode he has in the car. By the way. One of the worst meat cutes of all time is literally he's taking a drag off a cigarette inside what I'm guessing is like, I don't know, the venue from the green room. Like, honestly, like, <laughs> like I'm looking at the the characters in the background. I'm like, no wonder this girl's got a fucked up face. Like, yeah, but she, well, also, anytime you're just looking at a guy who looks like Nicolas Cage does, you see him take a drag of a cig and you're like. That's the one. That's who I'm hitching my wagon to. Well, like, yeah, you're you look- know she's very damaged. Yeah, you're looking at the back. You're looking around in the background. And you're like, oh, there's no way any of the rest of these guys are going home with a girl tonight. Like, Nicolas Cage is the best looking one in the joint. Well, this isn't even a Logan scenario where she's like, I just need a guy with a killer crossbow to murder people. No, no. <laughs> she literally chose him because of his dashing good looks and his daringness to, I don't know, smoke a cigarette indoors. So she, <laughs> like, he, he, sits there in the car and goes through, I don't know, I would say like 32 vari- thirty-two variables of emotions within the span of like 20 seconds. Like, he's sad. He's gleefully happy looking at her face. He's sad again. Like, it, it, the scope by which we have to, the scope of which we sit there and watch Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage out, is amazing. It's it's stellar to me. It was it was his one last ride with Mandy, right? Yeah, when he had yeah. completed his task. He remembered back to why he had done the task, right? This truly pure moment, and that moment in the bar—that's the moment, the best moment of his life, seemingly. Right. And then the rest of the stuff in the car is kind of hard to explain. And then they ride off. The together. way I and then take they ride it off is together that, yeah, onto Titan. He's this. He's this fucking bloodied up madman, right? That. He will forever wear the stain of this. He has changed. He likes what he just got to do right. again. Um, there's a lot of this, you know, we learn in the first, one of the first shots, he refuses a beer and then he's drinking in a bathroom. He needs the Reaper back. Um, this opened up a lot of old wounds. Yeah. To me, the ending is perhaps just saying, um, Nicholas Cage will reside in this hell for a long time. I like to think that the ending saying, this world is too good for Nicolas Cage. He must he must forge his own path on a new planet, and that's really kind of what this ends up being. No, no, I honestly like the interpret sequel is he's just plowing some alien. They take her, and then he's like, <laughs> Mandy in space. That's perfect. I'd watch yeah, that. I, I mean, I would watch Mandy in the hood. I, I would, Mandy in space. I would literally <laughs> watch Mandy in any single aspect of reality. I, I think this movie's incredible. Like it's it's the perfect fantasy for a time where. I, we, I was telling, I texted you. I was like, this would make a fucking goddamn incredible comic book because I swear yeah. to God, I've seen books like this. Like I think about stuff like, 
like Headlopper and uh, um, Rumble and like shit that just like seems hokey and weird and crazy, but is so fucking cool to look at. Like that's really what this movie to me ends up being is a movie that's so such a visual feast, but at the same time, like to get back to the point of reviewing this movie is the Nicholas this maybe the Nicholas Cageiest of all Nicholas Cage movies. It's Nicholas Cage Unleashed. It's so nice to see a Nicholas Cage movie that is new. Yeah. And just and hit the fucking same emotional reaction I've had to him earlier in his career. Absolutely. Um yeah, I think he went for it, man. Like I said, I I think he brings a lot to Red. You can see how fun it would have been to be Jeremiah Sand, but I think I think we got a lot of extra layers with Red instead of Jeremiah. I think so too. I think it would have been a waste of him being just one a one note character in the movie. Also, again, I, also Nicholas Cage is a tall guy. I think I think Jeremiah being kind of a shrivelly little dude makes it that much more oddly terrifying and that much better when he finally catches him and like he literally reshrivels into this like little sniveling little weasel. Like that, I think it's difficult to get Nicolas Cage to do that because Nicolas Cage is so much bigger than life a lot of the time in movies that had he been that character, finding an actor who could equal that and best it would be very difficult. Oh, I forgot one more tidbit I was going to ask you about. The young cult girl. The seemingly innocent one who doesn't want to partake in everything, right? Mm Mm-hmm. There are a couple moments with her that that left, left me with a bit of a question by the end, right? So let me... Let me lay this out. When we first meet Jeremiah, right? He calls for her at the end. He's like, send in sister, whatever. Right. Close the door. Nothing is made of it, right? We don't hear what happens in that meeting, right? I guess we would presume sex at that point. Sure. Later on at the table, she seems sympathetic to Mandy. Same within the drug room. When they do the circle around Mandy's burning corpse, she's the only one who looks like she has any empathy for the scenario. Right. Same with when she gets out of that van and Nicolas Cage is there. I am led to presume that he does not kill her because we do not see it. And there's no moment of bloody vengeance that we don't see it feels like. What is the deal with that girl? I mean, I think. I mean, yeah, I agree. I don't think she uh, I don't think she got killed. Um, I think she's just a lost soul. I think that's something that that's something that read doesn't worry about like red is a lost soul himself. So I think when he finds a new purpose, like his purpose was Mandy and then Mandy was taken from her. So now his purpose is taking everybody from the person who took Mandy from, but it's, it's taking all the people who took Mandy from him away from whatever they love, which we have to assume is just living. But that's what I mean. She (laughs) is a part of the cult. She never something there. There's something I think- extra with that character. And this is the kind of theme of this movie is I feel like I will watch this movie a lot over the years mm-hmm. and always find another chestnut. She's another one of those things in the movie that I was like, there's no way that they didn't understand. They were kind of leaving this thread bare. Right. And I didn't quite understand what to make of it beyond. Yeah. Maybe he just took pity on her. Right. Maybe she doesn't look the part of evil cultist. Right. But neither did the grandma necessarily. I think that, well, no, the grandma... Her behavior is more disturbing, obviously, right? The grandma did stuff. Like, the grandma injected her with that weird wasp, which might be one of my all-time favorite props. Um, 
You know. Oh yeah, what the fuck? Like she like she did stuff to her. Like she prepared her. The girl was But he wouldn't have known any of that. He had no time with Mandy to get the deets on who did what. Right, but it's not necessarily our like, this is another reason that the chemist scene I think is actually really important because where it is like he's sort of talking to himself. The chemist is essentially talking to him as an interpretation of himself. Mandy, and again, this goes to hopefully what I think is a lot of metaphysics going on in the movie. I think that he can just sort of sense. Like, obviously, this person, like the guy he stabs down the throat is someone who did something wrong. He knows that this person did something wrong. This girl who gets out of the car, not to like, because she just as easily could have run over and stopped him from doing it, but she didn't because she knows it's, it's the right thing. She knows that vengeance is sought, vengeance is best sought, and that is all she can do. She cannot prevent vengeance. So all she can do is get out of its way, and what does she decide to do? She decides to run. That, to me, yeah. makes her an innocent. I mean, it could honestly be as simple as maybe she was his last Mandy, right? Right. I think- and, and Nicolas Cage can kind of sense the sadness and tragedy. And I mean, maybe. But to me, this and this is one of the things I love about the movie, to wrap this up and kind of give final thoughts. I love that every single thing that is in the frame, I mean, simply down from the music to the lights, like even the colors in the frames, you feel like there's so much more to be learned yeah. from every single fucking thing that packs the frame. And very few movies do that. And the fact that this movie kind of walks between schlock genre and really fucking good, serious acting performances and the fact that it crosses effortlessly between so many genre elements that we love and the fact that they just fucking brought Nick Cage back to the promised land. Yeah. Um, To me, yeah, while not the most easily digestible movie... And a movie that asks a little more of you mm-hmm. and is often slower paced than you would imagine for this kind of movie. And, you know, one that you'd probably have to watch multiple times to fully embrace and understand. Right. Uh, I think everyone would have a really good time. And to me, anytime you get a chance to see a movie like this, like Mandy is not a movie you will easily forget down the road. No, right. Not at I all. just went and saw Predator, or the Predator. That's a very forgettable. Just another movie. Right. Right. With something you love. This is something I love, Nicolas Cage, but in an insanely memorable and uniquely crafted uh, new piece of work, man. And I I think every single person should do themselves a favor and enjoy this fucking two hours of madness. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for a movie that's two hours and one minute, I don't think I've watched a movie that long in a long time that I didn't feel was at least partially wasted. Every single minute of this movie is worthwhile. And it's interesting, like, the only way we can really describe it is sort of in the vein of this schlockfest B-movie thing. But, I mean, almost immediately it elevates itself above that and becomes its own thing entirely. And I think that's what makes it so watchable. Like, you watch a lot of these kinds of things that are in this grindhouse era genre, sort of this pastiche, because, you know, it makes you think of, oh, man, remember that time I watched that movie? Remember that time I saw that? Like, this movie says, remember that time you saw these things? Guess what? I'm not doing any of that. I'm just going to make a really fucking good movie and also remind you that this stuff occurred. Like, that's that's like the power of Mandy, I think, is that it's not nostalgia. There's movies that are nostalgia-based and they're supposed to throw you back. This movie throws you somewhere else entirely, and that's what I love the yeah, most about it. Yeah, to like this. another dimension. It's a whole <laughs> other kind of thing. 
Yeah, and and even if there's a bit of nostalgia thrown in, I don't think it's the cheap nostalgia. No, right? not like at pe- all. A lot of people now are remaking, like, we want to remake an 80s slasher. Right. And they're trying to use that as a shield of goodwill no, against no, no. often lesser storytelling. This is not the fucking case with Mandy. This is truly a fucking phenomenal piece of work on so many fucking levels. Nicolas Cage, of course, being among the best. Okay, this is early. You haven't seen it as much as the others. Does this make your top five favorite Nick Cage movies? 100%. Does it make your top five favorite Nick Cage performances? Oh, absolutely. Like, this is this is Pete Cage. Like, you're going to look back. You're going to see, like, he's done amazing things over the years. This one is definitely going to be one of the ones that lasts. Yeah, see, I fucking love this movie. And again, I realize I am a... Completely biased judge because someone absolutely scattered my ass <laughs> and stole these thoughts from my brain and put them on camera. I, uh, yeah, to me, the way we're at, right? I'm not all the way done with my Nick Cage research, so I'm not going to go all the way out. But to me, right, it's Arizona adaptation for sure. And then this might be my third favorite, right? Like, there are a lot of those good Nicolas Cage movies I love, but mm-hmm. I don't think the performances are quite as fun as this. I, there are some other zany options out there. The way I like to see my Nicolas Cage, this movie does in a big, bad way. Right? So while things like The Rock and Con Air, um, also kind of these cheesy genre fairs are easier to digest and sure. this and that, I don't know that Nick Cage is better in those. And I just like this kind of movie better. So for me... Mandy's an easy top five in both movies and performance, but this might honestly be about my my third favorite Nicolas Cage performance. Adaptation to me is the best, my favorite, yeah. personal favorite. And then I love Raising Arizona. The rest of them, it kind of starts to get a little harder, but I think Mandy's in it. This is the, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, I think a lot of them are interchangeable, but the three that you listed, I think, are probably definitely, I don't know what order they're in, but they're definitely in my top three. Like, I mean, it's crazy to just like, I mean, we haven't even mentioned Moonstruck. Yeah. Like there, there's a lot of fucking good Nick. I mean, we still have Wild at Heart, Bringing Out the Dead, uh, Con Air. Like we got a lot of Nicolas Cage to go and it's it's hard, man. It is. But it's. Like, I mean, fucking Bad Lieutenant. Yeah. Bangkok. Him dangerous, in that movie. Knowing. I mean, come on. Let's not lump Bad Lieutenant in. Nicolas Cage was great. Even though Werner was a little out on a limb. I don't know what the fuck he was doing in that movie. Just, Not my favorite movie, but awesome Nick Cage performance. Yeah, totally. It's yeah. I don't. I don't know, man. But I think Mandy is an easy top fiver in both categories for me. Run, don't walk to movie theaters, or it's on Amazon Prime for rental or purchase. I think if you get a chance to see this in a big screen with an audience of other shocked moviegoers, it would probably. If you get the right audience, I don't imagine you're getting plebs going in there who just want to text and, you know, swipe right or whatever. No, no. You're going with hardcore movie fans, which is probably the best part. Like, you're going in there with people who... To experience this fucking fever dream with other movie lovers, I think would be pretty rad. But, yeah, I bought it on Amazon. You can buy it for 20 bucks, rent it for around 5 uh, guys, you got to do this. I also bought it on Amazon, but it was mainly because I did not want to have to go down to Santa Monica to see it. So, Right. <laughs> Uh, that's it, guys, dude. I don't know what we can add to this fucking madness. If you haven't watched the movie, please fucking do. If you have watched it, you know how much you need to share it with your friends. And once they have watched and are befuddled, 
bring them into the show, man. This is how we'll spread the word. Uh, share us on your social media. Like all the stuff. Please leave ratings and reviews on any podcast apps you listen to us. That helps enormously. Guys, please uh, go see this movie. Yeah. Above all, just see this fucking movie. Uh, we have three more Nicolas Cage joints coming up. And then uh, we just released our intro show to next month. Uh, Halloween extravaganzas galore. We got body horror, stuff that scared you as kids. Uh, a new Michael Myers Halloween is hitting theaters. I couldn't be more excited. So much fucking awesome shit coming down the pipe. Uh, get in there. Get your hands dirty. Start, you know, digging around in the mud with us, guys. That's how we'll make this show better. All right, you vicious snowflakes. <laughs> yeah, on that note, I'm going to go uh, do some LSD and get my nip clamps on. <laughs> Peace, bitches.